Good morning, everybody. So good to worship together. Uh, for anybody who's brand new with us, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I uh, also want to take a moment and welcome everybody joining us on live stream. Can we just welcome everybody who's uh, joining us online? We're so glad to have you with us. We look forward to you joining us in person when you're able. Uh, Before we jump into the message today, I want to highlight something coming up. Uh, Nick just highlighted Christmas Eve. Make sure that you reserve your seats for yourself, your family, and your friends. And uh, But after that, into the beginning of the new year in 2023, we're doing something that we've done every year since the beginning of our church, and that's 21 days of prayer and fasting. And I want you to put it on your radar screen, not just as a calendar event, but something that we're going to all lean towards. And it's a really important time for our church. Uh, If you've never been a part of it, it sets the tone for the year. It sets the the posture of our heart for the year of humility and seeking out to God. And it is always important, but I just have a sense as we've been thinking about this and preparing for it in a few weeks that this is an extra special or extra important one for our house. And so uh, if you've never come before, I just cannot encourage you enough uh, to participate in the weekday prayer gatherings, one or some or all, whatever you're able to do. And uh, I believe that God is going to move in some specific and powerful ways in our lives individually and together during those times and in the months to come. And so if you would just put that on your calendar and please make an extra effort to be there. So today is, as was mentioned a moment ago, the second Sunday of Advent. And uh, there are four Sundays in Advent. Uh, Advent starts the four, fourth Sunday before Christmas. And if you were like me, grew up in a home where, um, where you didn't participate or have Advent as a season or whatever, I'm not sure what comes to your mind. You know, several years ago, uh, if somebody had said, what comes to your mind when you think of Advent, a, a, a cardboard or calendar where you open a door every day and behind every door is a piece of chocolate, that was my, that was the image that comes to my mind when I think of Advent and that ended, that was it. Uh, in our house, we have four boys and so we don't have chocolate Advent calendars, we have Lego Star Wars Advent calendars. Um, we order a new one every year, and, and you open a little door, and behind it is a little uh, Lego set that you get to put together. It's either a little ship or a little dude or, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, you know, Le- <laughs> chocolate's not going to come to my boys' minds. Uh, Lego Star Wars is going to come uh, to their minds as one aspect, but it is so much more than that. And maybe for anybody who's new with us or new to Advent, uh, I'd love to just give, uh, take a moment and give a bit of an overview as far as what Advent is all about and what it means. Advent starts the church calendar. Uh, the church calendar does not match the uh, U.S. calendar, which might, you know, starts January 1st, um, and so, but it starts with the life of Jesus. So it starts with His birth. And, uh, and, and it's centered around the church calendar in general, is centered around the life of Jesus, which is in contrast to not just the American calendar, but let's talk, talk about the consumer calendar that is front and center right now. The consumer calendar that, that, that specifically in regards to Christmas starts uh, uh, right after Halloween, if not before, and in some of your homes, you're like Christmas 
music junkies and you're starting in July or August and like, is it time yet? Uh, all that. Or, but then we've got Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all the different shopping sales. And what is that doing? It's centering around finances and gifts. And gifts are not bad. But what Advent does is reminds us that the season isn't just about purchasing power and sales, but it's about Jesus. Advent isn't just a, a once a Sunday, like four times throughout, the, throughout these, this month or so, but actually a daily entering into this practice. And so because of that, we have um, provide, are providing for everybody a Advent devotional. Um, I usually, at the end of a message, will give what we call a weekly practice, something for us to do throughout the week to engage what we're in, what, what's happening, or what the message is about. But I'm going to start the message here today with the weekly practice, uh, rather than the end. Uh, you'll find on one of the seats around you a little card that looks like this. It says Advent Devotional on the front. On the back is a QR code. You can scan that QR code, and that will give you access to a daily devotional. Jossie and I have been going through it uh, this last week. There's a passage of the Scripture that you read, uh, a little commentary on that, and, and then some different points of reflection and prayer. And it helps us to enter into the season of Advent and keep our hearts focused on the most important aspect of this season uh, as we participate and move towards Christmas. Now, Advent is not a fancy way or a spiritual churchy way of saying countdown to Christmas or the Christmas season. It's actually a separate season, and it ends on Christmas Eve, after Christmas Eve, and it is followed then by the Christmas season, which is where we give the, get the 12 days of Christmas. 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas and moves from there. So, Advent means arrival in Latin. And it is because we remember the first arrival of Jesus a couple thousand years ago, and then we anticipate His second arrival. So as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves living between two arrivals, which means that Advent is a season of celebration, remembering His first arrival. It is also then a season of anticipation, anticipating His second arrival. Arrival, which gives us a chance to talk about and lean into longing and waiting and expectation. So today we start our three-week Advent series called Great Expectations. Expectation characterizes Advent. We remember the expectation of the Jewish people longing for the Messiah that had been promised to them. And they didn't just wait for just a little while or a couple of years or a decade or two, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of expectation for a Messiah. Now, the Messiah Jesus did come, and He came, grew up, lived, died a brutal death on the cross, rose from the grave, and in doing so, he broke the power of sin and defeated death. But we still find ourselves in the brokenness and the pain of the world and aching for things to be different and made right, which will happen when Jesus returns again. So we too, just like the Jewish people, live in a state of expectation. It's expectation that is felt not just in our own hearts, but by all of creation is characterized in Romans chapter 8, 
verse starting in verse 22, where the Apostle Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning because it's like this isn't quite right, aching for things to be made right. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, as we have great expectation for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies for all things to be redeemed. So we live with expectation for Jesus' return. But as humans, we also live for expecta- with expectation in our own lives, not just for His return, but for, with, with hopes and with dreams and for, for desire for things to work out or get better or to be fixed or for something to come about. And expectations really are a good thing. Oftentimes, it's expectations that get us out of bed in the morning, Right? It is maybe our own expectations for uh, uh, what's going to happen that day. Oh, I, expecting to close a deal uh, at work or maybe expecting to, I'm going to take this test, I'm going to be done with this class. I, I'm going to have an exciting meeting or I, I'm excited about a new opportunity. So it's the expectation for the day or for the week that might get us out, out of bed. Other times we might find ourselves less motivated by our own expectations and motivated by the expectations of others. Right? You get out of bed if you got maybe young toddlers or young, young humans in the room or in the house, and then you get out of bed because they expect you to feed them and take care of them. And, or, or maybe your boss is expecting you to lead a meeting at work today. Or maybe somebody's expecting you to pick them up and give them a ride. This is the good side of expectations, but expectations also has a dark side. And it's the side where expectations are not met. I think of the ways in which maybe we have excitement for something and then something or someone doesn't meet those expectations. I remember people talking and, and getting so excited about, about In-N-Out Burgers. Um, and, and I remember thinking, this was before they ever made their way to Colorado. And, and, and I, so I remember the first time I went to California and I'm like, all right, I'm going to In-N-Out. I mean, talk, people talk about it like it is food from heaven. And, and so we went to In-N-Out and got a burger and fries and ate the burger. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And, you know, like the price for what it is and the whole thing. And then I had a fry. They did not meet my expectations. I mean, if your expectations of a fry are cardboard or styrofoam, then you will be thrilled about these fries. But they did not meet my expectations. I'm like, people talk about these things like they're awesome, and they are, they are not. They did not meet my expectations. And it might be a burger or a fry, or it might be a movie, but it certainly can be the ways that we might fail to meet other people's expectations. the reason that maybe a marriage is on the rocks, because we never expected for, to be treated in a particular way, or we, never ex- we, we failed to meet expectations for someone else, and things start to unravel, or we just fail to show up, or we fail to follow through. And oftentimes, we don't like missing expectations. We don't like failing. And so, we can oftentimes rationalize why actually the expectations were unfair, to somehow get ourselves out of this place of failure. It reminds me a little bit of the, the YouTube video of Millennials in the Workplace. Sorry, Millennials. Um, it's a characterization, but I'm going to throw you under the bus for just a second. 
The, 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 the boss talking to the young millennial employee says, you, you missed the deadline. You failed to meet the deadline. And the, and the employee, young millennial employee responds by saying, well, you failed to remind me about the deadline. Right? It's, it's your fault. Or maybe God doesn't meet your expectations. Your, your expectation that He's going to intervene. The expectation that He's going to somehow provide the expectation that somehow something's going to get reconciled, the expectation that He's going to show up in a particular way. And, and, and we, we think this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be. As we look at and we're reminded of Advent, we remember the people of God who had such great expectation, and there was hundreds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament that were reminding them and fueling their expectation of this coming king that would set them free, that were going to bring them freedom in life. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and they are thinking, this is the king, but they're thinking, he's not coming, and there's not, this isn't happening like we expected. He, he, he's born in a manger, not in a palace. He rides on a donkey, not on a stallion. He carries a cross, not a sword. And they're thinking, this isn't the guy that's going to overthrow the Romans? But see, just like in this case a couple thousand years ago, God did not meet their expectations, but God always meets His Because God's expectations of Jesus and His desire for all of the world was not to overthrow the Romans, but in fact to overthrow sin and death. So, you're not overthrowing the Romans, I guess you're not the one. Oh, no, 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 I've got greater and much bigger plans for what's going on. You didn't show up in the way that I thought. You're not doing what I want you to do. I've got bigger, I've got different. And so we can say, you might not meet my expectations, but you always meet yours. Or we fail to meet our own expectations. We might fail as a parent and the ways in which we treat our kids. We may, our life doesn't look the ways that we would want it to look. Our career hasn't gone the way that we thought it would go. We didn't, we're not in the position or doing the types of things that we thought we might be doing by a particular time in life. We didn't get into the school that we expected to get into. We we're not married when we, by the time we expected to be married. We, didn't, we're not, we haven't had kids by the time we expected to have kids. Or we didn't expect to have kids and now we have kids. Or my bank account doesn't look like what it was supposed to look like. Or my marriage doesn't look my expectations. I have failed my own expectations. I have not measured up. I have fallen short. And this feeling of falling short has a name. It's called shame. And the feeling of shame is a powerful force in our hearts and in our souls. And the feeling of shame sounds like I'm not enough when we fail to meet expectations. It sounds like I'm too much when I fail to meet expectations, which looks like I'm not worthy and I'm not lovable. Brene Brown, author and researcher, 
on shame says, Shame is the intensely painful feeling of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. An added connection. And we can help one another. There are ways in which we can open our lives and be vulnerable with others, and others can say, me too, or you're not alone. And it is valuable and important that we have people in our lives that can do that, but we have become really adept at talking about the psychological effects of shame, and that is important, but oftentimes we neglect to talk about the theological roots of shame. In order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning of the Scripture and look in the first book of the Bible and in the first couple chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning of the Scripture, we have God who creates a perfect world, and He places the crown jewels of His creation within the Garden of Eden, and He says to them, enjoy and experience the delight of my creation that God has delighted in. It is a place of and an experience of full-on delight and joy. And He says, this is the place of flourishing. Now, if you, if, but I give you one instruction. One particular instruction is to do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that will lead you away from the flourishing that I have designed you for and that I have designed this world for. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve choose to go against the way of God, decide that they want to determine good and evil for themselves and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before that, though, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Fully exposed, fully known, and no shame. But after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They realized they were exposed. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In this particular verse and throughout Scripture, coverings are... are, are uh, symbolic of covering over shame. So if it's naked and not ashamed, it's covered and, and ashamed. And it says a couple of verses later that when God came to look for Adam and Eve and walk with them in the cool of the day, and He says, where are you? It says that they hid. So here we have Adam and Eve feeling shame as a result of their guilt as a result of, of determining that they wanted to go their way and not God's way. Now, we don't like to talk about guilt in our day because we don't like to talk about sin. Guilt means that a line has been crossed and something has been violated. We don't like talking about sin and guilt because we don't like talking about and having any bad feelings. We live in a world that highly values personal pleasure and personal comfort. But when personal comfort is the highest value, feeling bad will be avoided at all costs. We'll do anything to not feel bad about ourselves or about something that we've done. We will hide. We will medicate. We will try to escape. Or in an effort to eliminate shame and the bad feelings, we'll just eliminate guilt. We'll just eliminate sin. You know, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. My, my truth I'll do, I'll do me. You do you. I'm just, I'm just living into the deepest, truest self that I am. 
I'll decide what is good and evil. And if I decide that I'm fine, then I will have no guilt. That's the way that we try to eliminate guilt and shame. And we'll do just about anything. We'll do that and we will blame. We will blame. Just the other day, I um, was taking a couple of, a stack of books. They were stacked horizontally on a bookshelf. And I was taking them off the bookshelf. And as I did that, right, stacked on top of them was this clay figurine thing that one of my boys had made when he was in elementary school. So like clay, uh, cool, fun, kid, beautiful thing. (laughs) Special meaning. Sentimental. Safe forever. And as I took it off the shelf, it tipped off the top of the books and fell onto the hardwood floor and shattered into a million pieces. Do you know what the first thing that came into my mind was? Why did Jossie put it there? <laughs> I mean, this was her fault. She put it there. <laughs> See, we oftentimes blame God or others for our failure to meet expectations. In Genesis chapter 3, just a couple of verses later, After the aid of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that says, the man said, the woman you put here with me. What does he do? He doesn't even blame the woman. He just says, God, this is your fault. You put her here. You put her here. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not my fault. I didn't. I mean, I ate it. But, you know, if you wouldn't have put her here, then I wouldn't have ate it. So that doesn't matter. It's just, God. You ever find yourself in that place? God, how could you let this happen? How did you, why did you let me fall into that crowd? Why did you let that person come into my life to lead me in this path? Or why did you put us together? We don't seem like the right people to be together in this type of a relationship, to be married, to a committed to our lives to each other, and this is how it looks? God, what are you thinking? Why did you do this? And we blame in order to keep ourselves from being humble. We keep ourselves from stepping into a place of humility that says, not, Jossie, I can't believe you put that there, but, Jossie, I'm so sorry. As I was taking those books off the shelf, I broke that really priceless, meaningful piece of our boy's art project. Humility. See, we might rationalize our failure to meet others' uh, others' expectations. We might hide. We might blame. But, and we might try to eliminate guilt and sin. But what does the Scripture say that we're supposed to do, and what is, how do we handle guilt and shame? Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22, says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that verse 22 and verse 23 is really bad news. And Paul is trying to make a point that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The reason he highlights that was because the the Jewish people might think, well, we've got Jewish blood. We got Jewish heritage. We are somehow God's special people. So that kind of elevates us and we have less need. What he's saying is, nope, Jew 
and Gentile, both those who have been part of the family of God and maybe those who aren't, or all have sinned. This is really bad news for you and me as well. It's not like, oh, well, you, you grew up in the nice family, or you stayed out of jail, or you didn't get in trouble, or you haven't broken a marriage, or you haven't broken a relationship, or, you know, we've kind of, you just stayed, you did all right. So, no, 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 all have, this is, the bad news is even worse than we feared. But this is the thing about this particular passage of Scripture. I love grammar, and so uh, I, I, I have a, and, and so punctuation matters. But I have a favorite piece of punctuation, and it's the comma. Because, because if, if this verse stopped with, and all fall short of the glory of God, period, that would be really, really, really bad news. But it says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Comma! That comma is pregnant with the gospel of grace that says, but that's not the end. Oh, 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 the bad news is worse than you feared. No doubt. But then it goes, and all, not just Jews, not just the good ones, not just the ones that are kind of good citizens. Now, all are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Not because of anything you did, not because of your family of origin, not because of how, how you took care of this, or how much money you gave here, or how you served, or the, how good your kids are, or how not all of it. But because of Jesus and His grace. Nothing you earned, nothing you could achieve, nothing you could somehow buy. No, given as a free gift by God because of the work of Jesus. See, the, the bad news is worse than we fear, but the good news is better than we hoped. Oh, the bad news is that we're all stuck. The bad news is that it's everybody. The bad news is there's nothing that somehow keeps us immune. But the good news is that Jesus took care of everything that we couldn't do for ourselves. And it's not something we earn, it's a free gift. The bad news is worse than we feared, but the good news is better than we hoped. And so, we find ourselves then in a place where we look to heaven and we're reminded in this Advent season that expectations were high, had been for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that sometimes God doesn't meet our expectations and we don't meet His or others, but there's grace. We are reminded of the grace of God in the middle of a place of expectation, in the middle of, place, of a place of failed expectations. So I don't know where you find yourself here today, and maybe, maybe it's your first time in church, your first time in church in a long time, and maybe you find yourself in a, having a feeling of just, I'm not enough, or I am too much. And therefore, I am not worthy. That's not what Jesus says about you. Jesus says you are worth it all. You're not unworthy. You are worth it all. And he, just like God in the beginning in the garden, after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and done what they weren't supposed to do and were covered in shame, God says, where are you? He wasn't like, where are you? No, he was, where are you? And today, Jesus is asking, where are you? 
Where are you? Not to wag a finger, but to welcome you home. To offer grace. And so the invitation today is to receive grace and trust in Jesus. And so for some of you, your next step at this point is to cross the line of faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. And if you say that, just even quietly under your breath, Jesus, I trust you. What you're saying is, I can't do this on my own, but I trust you that you have and will. And so I put my life in your hands. I follow you. The scripture says in Psalm chapter 34, verse verse 5, those who look to him, God, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, as it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah, he says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble. He's referring to Jesus. And a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. Why? Because we experience the life-changing power of Jesus in our lives. He doesn't just say, oh, there is no guilt because there is no sin. No, he deals with the guilt and the sin and brings about forgiveness so that we might live in the power and the light and life of Jesus. For some of you, your next step might be to step into community. See, shame grows in the dark. And we need to be people that step out of the dark into the light with God and with others. Because when we do, not only does it take away the power of shame and darkness, but it brings about and welcomes the power of light and life of God. And so together here today, we want to take a step together by taking communion. And so if you on your way in, you should have received a communion cup. You can grab that now. If somehow you missed that, uh, you can just raise your hand, and one of somebody from one of our for our host team will make sure to see your hand, and they'll make sure that you get a communion cup. You can just keep your hand up until they find you. If you choose not to participate in communion with us, that's totally fine. We practice what we call open communion here at Mill City, which means that. Communion is not about membership in one particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we'd love for you to participate with us. It's a way of saying, I embrace what you've done on the cross, and I want to remember that and live into that. The scripture also says that before we take communion, we're to enter it into, into it soberly. And to examine ourselves. So we just want to take a moment. Music's going to play softly. And I want us to open our hearts, open our hands, and allow the Holy Spirit to examine us, that we might reflect and confess. The Scripture says in Psalm 139, the psalmist asked the Spirit of God to examine him, to search and know him, that to find any anxious or offensive way. Maybe it's the expectation, the blame towards God or towards others. 
whatever it might be, would you allow the Holy Spirit to search you and then would you just offer that over to God? same posture of confession. We want to not only do this individually, but together. And so here in just a moment, a confessional prayer for all of us to pray together is going to come on the screen. And the reason we're going to pray a confessional prayer together is a reminder that all of us are in the same need of the grace of God. Not one of us is in greater need or less need than another. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we all are in need of God's forgiveness and mercy. And so, let's pray this confessional prayer together. We have lived by our own strength and not by the power of your resurrection. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. We have lived by the light of our own eyes, faithless and unbelieving. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us as we have lived for this world alone and forgotten that our home is in you. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. And so may the God of all healing draw us to himself and cleanse us from all our sins that we may behold the glory of His Son, the Word made flesh. Amen. If you would, grab your communion cup. If you've never used one of these, you peel off the top layer to get access to the bread, the next layer to give access to the juice. Before we eat of the bread or the ju- and drink of the juice, I want to remind us of the words found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says the Lord Jesus and the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you would, let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink the juice and then I'll pray. Father, as we remember what Jesus did, which is so not what so many people expected, but you did more than they could have ever expected. You did it out of delight and love for us recognizing that we were stuck in sin, that we had all, every one of us, all of humanity had been infected by sin, and that you, only you, were the cure. And so you gave yourself to us. We thank you, Jesus, for your selfless 
love. Going to the cross, giving your life away, experiencing agony physically, emotionally, mentally, in every way possible. And yet you did it because we were worth it. And so I pray, God, as we take in the bread and the juice, it is not tradition, but it is in fact a poignant and tangible reminder of your care and love for us and how we are in fact, not because of our own efforts, but because of your work on the cross, worthy and do not need to be covered with shame, but in fact, can live into and be who you've called us to be. And that we are forgiven, that we can live into and experience shalom. And so for this, we are so utterly grateful. This we pray.